I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 1st, 2018. Coming up, part one of our graduation special edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. We begin with a look at some of the upcoming science events at the Boulder Bookstore. Tonight, May 1st at 7.30, Craig Childs will talk about his book, Atlas of a Lost World. This book is a vivid travelogue through prehistory that traces the arrival of the first people in North America at least 20,000 years ago. Childs chronicles the violent oscillations and retreat of glaciers, the clues and traces that document the first encounters of early humans, and the animals whose presence governed the humans' chances for survival. A blend of science and personal narrative reveals how much and how little has changed since the time of the mammoth hunters. Then tomorrow, May 2nd at 7.30, also at the Boulder Bookstore, Mark Beckoff will talk about his book, Canine Confidential. For all the love and attention we give dogs, much of what they do remains mysterious. What goes on in dogs' heads? Do we really want to know? And how much can we know and understand? Rooted in the most up-to-date science on cognition and emotion, this book provides a treasure trove of new information and myth-busting. For more details about both of those events, go to the Boulder Bookstore's website at boulderbookstore.net. And now, the graduation season is upon us, and the University of Colorado at Boulder is holding its graduation ceremony May 10th at 8.30 a.m. in Folsom Stadium. So today's edition of How on Earth is the first part of our annual graduation special. Our guests in the studio today are those fearless scientific explorers who, after they got their undergraduate degrees, decided to go to graduate school and learn more and in greater depth in their fields. So we have three graduate students who are getting their PhDs either this semester or later this year. And they have joined us to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experiences, and perhaps what they have planned next. So let me start first with Oliver. Could you introduce yourself and what is the title of your thesis? Yes, good morning. Uh, my name is Oliver Payne and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at CU Boulder. Um, the title of my thesis, which is an ever-changing thing, <laughs> is uh, exploring the mechanical and nutritional properties of C4 plant foods in savanna habitats. All right, well, we'll hear more about that in a minute. Uh, next. My name is Deba Mani. I'm in the Integrative Physiology Department, and the title of my dissertation, which I defended March 7th, is Adjustments in Motor Unit Activity and Mobility Induced by Electrical Nerve Stimulation in Young and Older Adults. All right, well, we'll hear about that also. And finally, John. Um, hi, my name is John Nardini, and I'm from the Department of Applied Mathematics here at CU, as well as the Interdisciplinary Quantitative Biology Program, and I am, will be graduating this May, 
and my thesis was titled Partial Differential Equation Models of Collective Migration During Wound Healing. Now, I'm sure after hearing those titles, everyone knows exactly what they're all about. Really, we don't need to go anymore. I think the show is pretty much done at this point. But just in case there are some people who do not have their degrees in anthropology, integrative physiology, and applied math, maybe we'll go into a little more detail here. So, Oliver, let's start with you. You said it was ever-changing, but your thesis work probably you have pretty well defined here. Can you yeah. explain to us what it is? I mean, in a, in a nutshell, I'm interested in exploring what types of plant foods were eaten by some of our earliest ancestors going back one, two, three, potentially even four million years ago. And uh, the C4 plant foods, which may be something people aren't familiar with. Yeah, what is a C4? Yeah, so, so I'll back up. So... There's different photosynthetic pathways that plants can use, and C4, um, th that photosynthetic pathway, is something that is uh, used by mainly by tropical grasses and some of the sedges that live in these uh, warmer tropical environments. Basically, that photosynthetic pathway confers a better efficiency uh, for plants living in dry and warm conditions. So uh, we have this interesting thing when we look back at the fossil record with our hominin ancestors. Hominins are those things that are more closely related to us than they are to something like a chimpanzee or closest okay. relative. So we find these fossils and using uh, stable isotope studies, which I, don't, I won't go into it too much, but basically we can see um, through the stable isotopes that are incorporated into some of the tissues that we find in these fossils that hominins uh, as a group began to incorporate more of these C4 foods into their diet beginning about three and a half, four million years ago. And, and they reach, it reaches its, its, its zenith in this, this very bizarre uh, relative of ours called Paranthropus boisei, which lived in East Africa, um, which incorporated as much C4 foods as what you'd see, say, from a grazing wildebeest or a zebra. Huh. Um, and this was truly remarkable because, as you can imagine, there was a lot of pushback about well, you know, are we eating grasses? Yeah, are we just grazing along right. the savannah? So I don't want to suggest that we were we were grazers because a we're primates and not ungulates. W once we realized that these C4 foods were becoming increasingly important, we also see that in concert with that, um, we see all of these interesting morphological adaptations in our in our group um, that that separate us really from things like chimpanzees. Uh, so some of our earlier ancestors had had much larger teeth with with thick dental enamel. Um, something like Paranthropus boisei had this massive uh, uh, skull architecture that, that looks for like it's... chewing. Well, right. So the initial interpretations for it, it was actually called Nutcracker Man. <laughs> and they thought it, they thought it was, it was uh, designed to, to produce high bite forces, hmm. you know, crack things like nuts and, and hard, hard objects. And so when we found this C4 signal in this thing, it sort of threw everything out of whack. It, and it and so this C4 signal, again... Uh, you used isotopes that originated yeah, in I didn't the plants, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 then they transferred into the bone. Yeah, yes, you are what you eat. So basically, if you eat, so if, for instance, uh, most Americans would have a pretty high C4 signal if we looked at your say hair or any other tissue because hmm. we eat a lot of corn. Corn is a C4 grass. Ah. So, um, so yes, it's it's a way of peering into the diet. I mean, it's a broad division, but. Um, but it's useful because these things tend, and we do find when we do habitat reconstructions, as you move through time, we become more and more associated with savanna landscapes. And savannas are these mosaic habitats that have wetlands and pockets of woodland and open areas of grassland. And so it's a, it's a very complex and dynamic system uh, that we were evolving to basically exploit and take advantage of. So it wasn't expected that those early hominids were 
making use of these C4 rich uh, no, presses or no, it wasn't. Plants. And 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 one of the things that I've helped or I hope I've helped is to remind us is that we also do a lot of primatology. We look at primates as models for for hominins, and we do find this very very successful species of monkey, which everyone knows, the baboons, uh, who do consume a lot of grasses, a lot of sedges. But again, they're not grazers. They're very selective in how they eat things. They eat seeds. They eat uh, underground parts. Um, and what we realized is we really had a, a dearth of information about the nutritional properties of these things. Because, for instance, grasses, which I'm really interested in, considered to be very low nutrient. But no one had really gone out and quantified this in a way that I've done. So my fieldwork has taken me over the last five, six years uh, to these African savannas in East Africa and Southern Africa. And I collect plants, um, separate them into their parts, bring them back to the lab here at CU, analyze the nutritional properties. Uh, and what we find is that uh, grasses, and particularly C4 grasses, have huge amounts of variation in terms of standard things like protein, hmm. which are hmm. obviously hugely important for food selection. Uh, in animals. So, uh, and then the other side of that, because I know we need to get to other people, uh, is the mechanical part of it. So, yeah, I was going to yeah. ask you about uh, this. You have a port portable mechanical tester. Yes, yes. It's a portable mechanical tester. It's very similar. So I have a, uh, one of my, one of the people on my committee uh, is in the engineering department. Um, and it's essentially you take these lab-based bench testers and uh, uh, a gentleman named uh, Peter Lucas, along with others, uh, made a portable version that you can take into the field. And it's a, it's a very basic concept. You essentially have a load cell that measures you know, pressure and force. Uh, you attach it to a pair of scissors. I mean, it's a little more complicated, than this, but that's the basic idea. And you take these plant tissues and you, you cut through them and you actually can quantify uh, the amount of energy it's required to propagate a crack through that. And the whole idea of this, and I'll stop here, um, <laughs> is that when we see this, this, these large teeth and this thicker dental enamel, it's most likely a response to the physical properties of these plants. So if you have something like Paranthropus that is uh, consuming this kind of vegetation, maybe in huge amounts, it's putting a lot of, of stress on that, the teeth, and, and you do. You see the teeth completely worn down as they go through life. Um, but you would also require that musculature for that repetitive loading, that constant chewing. Okay. Um, so, yeah, sense. that's... I, I get, when it. I read that, I just had an image of the Terminator skull just it's you know, a, bring into the field, like sitting next to you while you're having <laughs> dinner and chewing on whatever it's you're a, eating. It's an interesting thing to take through customs uh, <laughs> because when they see it, particularly in some of the countries where they're not, you know, they don't see a lot of this kind of equipment and they, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that great description. Uh, let's move on to Dibamani. So tell us uh, what your thesis study and dissertation was all about. Sure. So my primary interest is in evaluating the neuromuscular determinants of movement in young and older adults, meaning how do we move, what are the components of the nervous system and the muscular system that allow us to move, and how do those change as we get older? Of course, this interest comes from the fact that all of us are going to get older, and some of us... Oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and some of us might be very curious about how that's going to uh, affect us and how we are able to perform activities of daily living. And so I was specifically interested uh, in the component from the spinal cord to the muscle. So that component's called the motor unit. The motor unit comprises the motor neuron originating in the spinal cord, its axon, and all the muscle fibers it innervates. And we wanted to evaluate the different characteristics of the motor unit in young and older adults and how an intervention such as electrical nerve stimulation could influence the characteristics and then translate into 
gross movement, how we walk, how we um, perform activities that require strength, our manual dexterity, and our balance. So testing kind of all those things, but also as a function of age, young versus old, how it how it gets so much better as we get older, right? It does in some ways, oh, but good. yes. <laughs> Something uh, to look forward to. Uh, but yes, exactly. Um, an age-related component as well as an intervention to influence. So what were the actual tests that you did? And I guess you were using live subjects, which adds, I'm sure, an additional twist to uh, doing your thesis work. That is exactly why I um, joined the research lab that's led by Dr. Roger Anoka. I love working with other humans, and that includes experimental research protocols that requires human subjects. And uh, some of these tests that we measured in at least a six-week intervention implementing neuromuscular electrical stimulation on the calf muscles in older adults um, looked at balance uh, through a rapid step test and a maximum step length test, walking 400 meters. Um, the 400 meter walk test has been indicative of mortality in older adults. Uh, we also evaluated a chair eyes test, which is commonly implemented in the clinical setting, among a series of other measures like electromyography using a novel. Myography? Exactly. Uh, electromyography, the measurement of muscle activity, the okay. electrical activity of muscle. So what were some of the results that you found? Well, um, we wanted to evaluate different parameters of this electrical nerve stimulation to find the best parameters as far as electrical pulse widths and frequencies and so forth. We found no difference in the two um, parameter groupings that we were looking at, but we saw overall electrical nerve stimulation can improve mobility in older adults. And the timeline for when these improvements occur for the different mobility tests differ, whether or not that improvement is retained after you stop electrical nerve stimulation intervention varies, but overall it works. So, and, and again, I guess maybe to back up here, I knew what electrical muscle stimulation is, but that's basically where they put some pad on your arm or leg or something, and then it starts twitching like crazy and you have no control over it, right? Exactly. Hopefully not a um, uncontrollable twitch. We <laughs> increase the intensity of electrical current sent to these stimulation pads placed over a muscle that evoke a contraction gradually, especially in older adults who we want to be very cautious with. Uh, we increase the intensity, and if the intensity is adequate, a muscle contraction is evoked. Uh, we've also looked at just sensory uh, stimulation. So you feel the stimulation. Uh, so this engages a central component, the sensory afferents that go back to your spinal cord, rather than actually eliciting the contraction. In the tests that you did, did you find effects only directly on the muscle that was stimulated? Or did you find, uh, I don't know what the term is, but reflective or other indicators in other muscles? Sure. So we have evaluated um, the difference in activity in contralateral muscles. In one experimental study, we elicited electrical stimulation on the right biceps, fem uh, biceps brachii, and then we evaluated motor unit discharge characteristics in the left. We also evaluated simply um, changes in strength. If we're stimulating the calf muscles in these older adults, is there going to be a strength improvement in the hip flexors, the knee extensors, the knee flexors? In our results, we did not find that there is a translation for strength improvement. Mm. The only strength was in the muscles that were directly stimulated, so the plantar flexors, gastrocnemius, and soleus. What will this lead to? You, you got all these people in the lab and did electrical muscle stimulation and measured all the muscle things, and what do you do with that? Well, definitely physical activity, just voluntary exercise is still the best thing. 
I think this could be translated into implementing uh, in people who aren't able to engage in physical activity, bedridden patients in a hospital, for example. Hopefully our work, though, with older adults shows that there is some sort of improvement that can be um, elicited in healthy people. Can we translate it to be used in less healthy individuals? That could help minimize deterioration of muscle tone and things like that for people who are laid up in the hospital for a long time or otherwise unable to really get that exercise. Right. If we don't use it, if we don't implement muscle activity, we don't exercise, our muscles are going to atrophy. They're going to get smaller. Um, If we can't engage in physical activity, then let's use something that's eliciting, evoking contractions like electrical stim. So we have you are what you eat and use it or lose it. So the secret for living forever is just keep active, right? Living forever or living perhaps uh, more healthily. More healthily. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that indeed. Well, thank you very much, Diva. If you have just tuned in, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm with three graduating graduate students from various departments at the University of Colorado. We've already met Oliver Payne and Diva Mani, and my next guest is John Nardini. So welcome, John. Hi, thank you. So tell us what your thesis was and what you did. Yeah, of course. So I'm actually a math biologist. So first I'm going to take a minute to talk about the biology, and then I'll talk about how the math I did was applicable to this biological system. Uh, So one of the fancy words in my title was collective migration, which is defined as the coordinated migration of a population of cells. So it's pretty much any instance in biology where you have a group of cells that that all migrate as one coordinated unit and not autonomously from each other. And this is one of the processes in wound healing where we know that our skin sort of magically knows how to heal itself in response to a cut or scratch. Thank goodness. (laughs) And so my thesis was done with um, experimentalists from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry here at CU. And they perform scratch assay experiments where they grow a monolayer of cells inside of a well plate and then scratch away half the population to mimic a wound and watch the remaining cells migrate into this empty space and use microscopy to watch these cells migrate. And so, the, um, and so mathematical models have become a very important tool for biologists in recent years because they can still provide a lot of insight into a biological system when done correctly, but they can be performed for free and hopefully within a very short period of time, as opposed to experiments which can be, which can be costly and time-consuming. And without having to wound people. And without having to actually wound people. So yeah. it's nice yeah. to just do it on, That's comu- a on a computer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the goal of my dissertation was to use mathematical models to try and interpret these experiments and also help provide some of the underlying biological uh, processes that were underlying this process. Um, So for instance, one of my studies was to look into some of the mechanical cues that underlie this process. So for example, uh, cells from our epidermis, or the outermost layer of our skin, maintain physical connections to their neighbors even as they migrate into the wound. So the simple question I wanted to ask was, how do cells use these physical connections to their neighbors as to a to benefit their migration into the wound. And so when I, when I derived a mathematical model that assumed that as a cell migrates into the wound, it uses these connections to pull its neighbors into the cell along with it, I found that this mathematical model was able to fit experimental data pretty well, suggesting that this was indicative of what the true wound healing process is like. So the model may, it at least mimicked what actually was seen done. It may not show any underlying 
reason for it, but it was a good description. Exactly. It was a good description of what we see. And yeah, so it shows us that it was a good indication that cells use these to pull on their follower cells. What did you find out here? Uh, you ran these math models of yeah. different wounds, and I guess compared to these scratch... Uh, these scratch assays. Assays. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the best thing I think we, that we learned was that, indeed, these, these physical connections are what cells use to pull on their followers. And it also suggests a level of communication between cells in the population that cells have to sort of mi simultaneously migrate and pull on their followers to, to coordinate this migration signal throughout the entire cell population. And the most surprising thing of this work was that, you know, this caused us to propose that these physical connections are what cells use to communicate this migration signal. And so we furthermore, this caused us to then perform a similar experiment in cell populations that had decreased levels of these physical connections. And we found that these cell populations were unable to maintain these healthy rates of migration into the wound, whereas cells at the front of the leading edge of the wound edge were able to migrate quickly, but they couldn't communicate this signal throughout the rest of the population. And so I think the most surprising thing was that this simple mathematical model could provide us with a lot of insight into the underlying biology of healthy wound healing. So that's interesting. I mean, this is a mathematical model that mimics what you see without having to take into account all the physiology and the immune system and everything like that that goes. It at least is a good description. Exactly. It's probably the second simplest model I could have used to describe these um, experiments, and yet it still can provide us with a lot of information. That's part of the beauty of mathematics is that the, even these very simple assumptions can give us a lot of detail and information. Would it be stepping out too far to say this might lead to ideas, methods for better, faster wound healing? Will there be a Star Trek thing they can put up to a wound and <laughs> heal it in 10 seconds? Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but there is a significant problem to the U.S. healthcare system, which are chronic wounds or simply wounds that fail to heal. And these are a problem for the U.S. healthcare system because this leaves us, our bodies, to be more prone to infections. And the problem with these chronic wounds is we're not quite sure yet why they, they fail to heal. And so I do think that mathematical models could help provide us some insight into why these wounds fail to heal and thus provide us with some ideas for how to get these wounds to actually start healing with a mathematical model. Did you have this in mind when you started grad school? This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I did, actually. When I ah! came... <laughs> <laughs> I, I expected to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so actually when I was interviewing at CU for graduate school, um, I talked with a math biologist professor here, and he talked about several projects, and I heard, oh, talking about wound healing and working with mm -hmm. experimentalists, and I already had some research into math biology, and I knew that that was what I wanted to do, and so I was really excited about working on an interesting project that involved collaboration with experimentalists. And so it was this project that kind of got me to come here to grad for grad school. Ah, excellent. Well, Deba, what about you? Uh, what did you have in mind when you started grad school? And how did it differ from the reality, you know, versus expectation? Well, following my bachelor degrees, I did not think I was going to go into grad school, but rather I thought I was going to follow the stereotypical path of medical school. I did not. I was lucky enough to have joined this research lab as a freshman, and I stayed because the people that I worked with were just so fantastic and motivating me. And I worked with some geriatric populations, and I fell in love with that population. Older adults are just amazing, and you know, young people are awesome, but older adults mm -hmm. are actually very interested in improving their mobility, and they're there for the betterment of science, whereas younger adults are typically there for the 10 bucks that we offer every hour. <laughs> <laughs> so so you you got kind of drawn in a little bit by the, by the group initially, 
the people you worked with or professor or other students and then just found this uh, topic that really just attracted you? Definitely. It's uh, connected to my own interest in physical activity and sports. And what better way than to expand on that in a clinical setting in a population that's interested in it? And just to show that grad students aren't all just sitting in the lab, you just mentioned sports. You do judo? I do do judo. Um, I do do um, judo. I do do judo. I am uh, a active national referee right now. I used to compete nationally and internationally, and I'm very lucky to be in a community of people that continue to encourage my educational endeavors. And Oliver, so what was your motivation for grad school? Uh, did I come to study evolution and expect to be collecting grasses yes. in savannas? Yeah. No. Uh, that's, that's you not didn't picture I, yourself there? I didn't there? picture myself, but it just worked out that way. Uh, yeah, it's, I just, I've always been fascinated with how we got to be this very bizarre hairless primate that we are. <laughs> and uh, I, too, like Deba, work with a, a very amazing group of, uh, of senior scientists, and, uh, and it's been a very collaborative effort to do this. And it's exciting to, to provide uh, data that will actually potentially might inform debates rather than just sitting in armchairs and pontificating Pun, yes. about evolution and humans. We don't know any professors like that. No, 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 no. Of course no. Not. So just for a last question, I'll go boom, boom, boom here. Grad school's over or soon to be over. What next? So, Oliver. Uh, just like everyone else, I, I would like to get a job. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm actually going to the field at the end of uh, end of this month, so it, the uh, research will continue. It's uh, going to be my life working in these in these in this fieldwork. So. The research continues. Diva. Well, a few months ago, I accepted a position to primarily teach at the University of Florida in Gainesville. So my first step will be going there. Ah, excellent. Uh, from Rocky Mountains to humidity a little bit. It's okay. It's a change. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And, and is, that a, is that defined as a postdoctoral position? No, it's an instructor or lecturer position, but excellent. I will have the opportunity to engage in some research, which I'm really well, lucky for, and hence the, the location choice. Excellent. And John? Um, I, too, will actually be going to humidity. Uh, I recently accepted a postdoctoral position at the Statistical and Applied Mathematical Sciences Institute, or SAMC, in the Research Triangle Park of North Carolina, and I'll be participating in their program on, on precision medicine. Excellent. Well, something to look forward to. Maybe we'll have you back in here as you write the next set of papers or tell us about your experiences elsewhere. I would like to thank our guests, Oliver Payne, Deba Mani, and John Nardini for being on our show. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you very much. Us. Thanks, Joe. We have been talking with Oliver Payne, Deba Mani, and John Nardini, all of whom will soon be receiving PhDs from the University of Colorado at Boulder. They shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of peek into the world of graduate school. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Well, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth... 
the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker.